Psalm 14. We always uh, try to stand in honor of God's word. This is Psalm 14. These are the words of God. To the choir master of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, this word from the text of Psalm 14. We ask that you would uh, uh, give us a better understanding of what atheism, um, the concept of it from a biblical viewpoint, what that looks like. Uh, Lord, I'm so thankful that we're able every Sunday to confess our sins and be assured of the pardon of our sins because only in that is life. Only in that are are things uh, that you have for us able to be made real to us. Our hearts are changed and we are drawn into a flourishing life with you as Lord and Savior. So we thank you for your word. We ask that it would be beneficial to our minds and hearts, that the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you, and that we would meditate on your word together today and be convicted of sin, walk away from it, and towards Jesus in uh, full and true worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Thank you. I want to start this morning um, with the title, which is Jesus Saves Atheists. Believe it or not, that can happen. Uh, It's one of the uh, crazy things about the world and one of the wonders of God that he loves people who consider him to be non-existent. And we're going to talk today about not just people who consider God to be non-existent intellectually, but we're going to talk about maybe some of us here in this room that are functional atheists. We may say the words that God is real. We may even claim to be followers of Christ. And we may be followers of Christ, but in our day-to-day living, functionally. So we're going to answer a couple questions this morning uh, from a biblical standpoint. And that is, what is atheism? What is atheism? Uh, What does the Bible have to say about it? And what are the consequences of true atheism? And what is it at, uh, at its roots? So... To get started, I wanted to mention a couple of famous atheists, and you may have heard of some of these folks. Uh, The first is a gentleman named Rath, W-R-A-T-H, James Wright. Uh, He is a kickboxer turned atheist blogger. Okay, so uh, I thought the name was interesting, and I also thought the professional career uh, was an interesting trajectory there. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how people who live in an atheistic manner um, have as their core belief system, really hatred and wrath. It's interesting that he chose that moniker as part of his name. The second is a very famous atheist, Richard Dawkins. Uh, Richard Dawkins has this really interesting quote, and he said, and this is pretty dismal in, in my perspective, he said, humans are selfish lumbering robots who are controlled by their selfish genes. So um, welcome to the selfish lumbering robot club, and you are a selfish person, according to Richard Dawkins. Uh, Richard Newdow, another famous atheist. He was a, uh, and is a litigator, a lawyer, 
that has tried to get God out of the Pledge of Allegiance, off of the coins, you know, at, at the United States uh, Mint. He's tried to get the, the mention of God or anything related to religion off of coins or in any public space completely removed. And this is what's really interesting. Uh, he is an ordained minister in the Universal Life Church, and he's an atheist, okay? So um, really interesting that, that some of these folks maybe seem confused. And I could spend a lot of time today picking on these men and others who are self-proclaimed atheists. But what is an atheist, really? I think when we get down to it, Psalm 14 answers that question. And it starts in verse 1 through 3 by, by basically saying that an atheist is a foolish person. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Foolish. Foolish. That's a really strong word. As a matter of fact, Jesus warns people not to use that word because it's such a strong word. It reveals so much about the person that it could be considered slanderous if used inappropriately. And yet God in Psalm 14 says that people who say there is no God are foolish. Again, warned by Jesus not to use that word, but God uses it to describe people who say there is no God. Um, this word foolish has, has a meaning in its original uh, meaning of the word was senseless. Senseless. It's a militant rebellion against the obvious. That's what being a fool is. It, it's a militant rebellion against the obvious. Okay, so if you're a Raiders fan, I, I, I won't go there. Um, a militant rebellion against the obvious. That's what a fool is. It's someone who says, I can drive 75 miles an hour in a 35 mile an hour zone and, and the cops will not stop me or ticket me or put me in jail. That's a person who is in militant rebellion against the obvious. You're going to get caught. Someday that's going to catch up with you. You're going to get a ticket. Uh, it's a person who is militantly in rebellion against the laws of nature. I mean, if you uh, want to climb, like I've told the story many times of, of climbing a, a, a cliff, basically, without any ropes and running shoes on, it, that was a foolish thing to do because I'm in militant rebellion against the obvious laws of nature that without some safety device, it's very likely that I could have fallen from that cliff and really hurt myself or even died. It's senseless. There's no sense to a person saying there is no God. Romans 1 is very clear on this, and it says that God is plain to see and that those who reject him are without excuse. If you say there is no God, it's foolish. It's very difficult to argue with crazy people. Have you ever tried that? I, I do it all the time in my mind. I'm like, can I convince this person of a rational, objective, logical thought? If they're foolish, if they're senseless, if they don't understand the basic laws or the basic understanding of what you're talking about, you're not going to change their mind because it's not just a rebellion. It's a militant rebellion against the obvious. There is a God. It is obvious to all creation. Romans chapter 1. And those who are foolish um, have a militant rebellion against that. Now, now, many would agree and outwardly they would say that they believe in God. I mean, if you go across the country and do the research and do the surveys and the studies, a vast majority of people in our country say that there is a God. In other words, by the definition that we've placed on what atheism is, they would say, I am not an atheist, I believe in God. But David goes further in this uh, particular verse, and he, he says at the very beginning, the fool says where? 
in his heart. See, it's not what comes out of your mouth that makes you an atheist or a theist, a person who is uh, not believing in a God of any kind or sort, but a person or a person who does believe that there is a God and he exists. It's not what comes out of your mouth that makes you a theist or an atheist. It, it's what comes out of your heart. It's what do you believe at the heart level? So the question is, do you believe in the God of the Bible at the heart level? Not the God of your creation or not the God that you read about in some self-help book in the library. I'm talking about the God of the Bible who has revealed himself through Scripture. We know that Scripture, according to Hebrews, is living and active. It's alive. It's the only book that has ever been written that is alive and active and is the Word of God. It's the revelation of who God is. And, and when we read that, we can know who God is, but the fool um, says in his heart, there is no God. So do you believe in the God of the Bible at the heart level? And this is what David is getting at. Do you have, and this is just going to cut down to brass tacks here, do you have a total trust in God, not only in his existence, but also in his sovereignty? Do you believe he exists That's important, but do you believe, more importantly, in his sovereignty, that he rules? He has established all things. He governs over all things. He is sovereign. That everything we do on the planet has been overseen, that God is watching over and has ordained all things to be what they are, and that he is in control of everything in the cosmos. Do you believe in that God? Because that is the God revealed in the Bible. If you say the words that God exists, but don't have that heart level understanding that he rules, establishes, and governs all things, then you have a tendency towards atheism. Because atheism is not just an espoused philosophy of the intellect. It is a way of life that comes from the heart. Okay, so when you become a follower of Christ and he begins to work in you, the change of your heart that you want to worship him and follow him and obey him and do what he says in all areas, as it says in Matthew 28, that we're to go into the world, make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that God has commanded. When you become a follower of Christ, that becomes your desire. And you believe at the heart level that the sovereign God of the universe is worthy of your trust. That's that's a way of life. Because that affects everything that you do and everything that you are and everything that you feel. Uh, recently, I, and believe me, when I talk about the struggles of people, know that I struggle with many things as well. But I've recently um, been, been dealing with some folks who are, are experiencing a great deal, a great deal of anxiety. A great deal of anxiety. Very nervous about what the future holds. Very anxious and worrisome about a particular relationship or something that is going wrong in their life. And all I can tell them is to point them to the God of the universe who loves them. If they're a follower of Christ and wants to have a relationship with them and wants to to develop their soul and their spirit so that they will flourish, I can only say you can just trust in God. He is the sovereign over all things and whatever it is that you're going through, you can trust. And that becomes a way of life that comes from the heart. That's when you really know that you believe in Jesus. So it also says the definition of atheism, it's foolish. 
We say that in our heart. Um, but it's also corrupt. Corrupt. Atheism is corrupt. And this is the real meaning of the word. People who are atheistic in their heart, that they say there is no God, their purpose is to destroy and annihilate. That's the literal meaning of the word. When you are a corrupted person, your sole desire isn't just to do wrong things without any kind of conscience bearing down on you. It's to destroy and annihilate. Okay, so when you say in your heart, there is no God, you find yourself on a trajectory as a true atheist that you want to destroy and annihilate. It's very interesting that many atheistic philosophers, including Frederick Nietzsche, who said God is dead, went crazy and destroyed himself. And in the process, wrote a philosophy called nihilism or wrote about a philosophy called nihilism that has destroyed many other souls along its path of destruction. The purpose, when, when you say there is no God, you become corrupt and your purpose becomes to destroy and annihilate. Fourth, I believe I'm at four. Uh, a person who says there is no God does abominable deeds. Abominable deeds. Now, right now, many of us are tracking through our moral inventory and we're wondering if we've done anything abominable. Okay, it's not dressing up like a snowman. Okay, We're not talking about that. Um, abominable. And, and we're listing through the sins. Okay, I, I know I cut that person off in traffic and I may have had a particular you know, response to them. I don't think that's abominable. Um, well, maybe that little white lie I told at, at work. Nah, that's not abominable. Maybe something I saw on the internet. Yeah, it was bad, but is it really abominable? Well, l- let me tell you what the, the context and the meaning of this word in this passage is. They do abominable deeds. In other words, they live in, quote, unquote, a vile manner. And it's related to the worship of idols. Okay, so abominable things, abominable deeds are idolatrous deeds. They're idolatrous things that you do. Now, we don't have an understanding of our own idolatry in America because we believe that if we don't bow down to a wooden idol at our home, we're not idolaters. The Bible has a completely different definition of what idolatry is. Idolatry is what your heart pursues to satisfy itself instead of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, the son that is idolatry. So if you chase after money in thinking that more money will make you happier, you are an idol worshiper at the expense of God. If you chase that, if you chase a relationship other than your relationship with God, thinking that that will make you happier and solve your problems, you are an idolater. So, uh, uh, A person who does abominable deeds is a person living out of a heart that may say, I believe in God, but functionally they don't believe, they don't trust God at the heart level, and they live in a vile manner. They pursue idolatries. They pursue idols of all different kinds. And and some of them are small, and you keep them and you think, man, I'm going to manage this little idol. My, you know, my little idol is whatever it is. It's, you know... Uh, um, a recreational activity. I'm just going to manage this little thing. There's nothing wrong with recreational activities. Uh, Believe me, I love recreational activities. 
I, you know, sometimes don't get to do them as much as I'd like. But I, I love to go to the mountains, and I love to ski, and I love to play football, and I love to coach, and I love to do all these different things. But there are times when I try to manage my little idols of my heart and say they won't get that big. And the Bible says in Psalm 14 that if you pursue anything other than God to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart, you are an idolater. And in God's eyes, it is an abominable thing. Now, now, some of you are, might be defensive. You might have that fool side of you kicking in, the militant rebellion uh, against the obvious. Let me tell you what chasing after God or what pursuing God or, or the worship and trust fully in God looks like. It looks like a flourishing life. God doesn't want you to follow him so that he can make you miserable. He wants you to follow him and worship him 24-7 because it's the way you will flourish. And, and Christians maybe need to, to change our message a little bit. We need to talk about sin and repentance, but we need to talk about also what does it mean to flourish under the, the sun inside of the God who made us? If he made us, does he also not tell us how we can flourish in him? I would say absolutely yes. That's why it's an abominable thing to chase idolatries. And that's why fools do abominable deeds because it is the opposite of being holy or whole. You could do moral deeds for idolatrous reasons and they become abominable. They're not rooted in the complete heart worship of the triune God. That's why, uh, you know, I, I get... Um, I get into conversations sometimes uh, with folks who say, man, you sure talk about sin, repentance, salvation, you know, turning to Jesus a lot. Man, can't you talk more about like the needs of the planet? I'm like, well, the biggest need of the planet is a heart changed by Jesus. And you know what happens when hearts are changed by Jesus? They go do deeds on the planet. And they do them for the right reasons, with the right motivations, because they're doing them out of a worship of the living triune God. You can go, you can go do the, okay, I'll go for that, okay? You can go do all of the great things that you see uh, needing to be done on the planet. If you're not doing them for the glory of God, they are abominable. Okay, you can actually use that as self-worship to, to mount up this thing that you think, man, I am such a great person. Look how many poor I've helped. Look how many causes I'm dedicated to. The one cause that we're dedicated to is giving glory to God. And through that, through that relationship of the flourishing life that I told you about, we do great things and we point to him and say, God is so good. Look what he's doing through his church and through his people. The sad truth is this, that without Jesus saving us, we are all functional atheists. We, we can give lip service to a belief in God. We can even go to church. We can participate in religious activities. But Jesus says clearly, and this passage says cl clearly, that there is no one who does good truthfully and completely uh, doing good in worship of God. There is no one who does that. And it says in this passage, as we finish with verse 3, that God is looking for the person, but they cannot be found. They cannot be found. No one seeks to understand their need to worship God or to seek after God. 
every person has turned aside from the worship of God and not even one who does good, quote unquote, is worthy uh, of God unless they have turned aside from their idolatries and turned back to the true worship of God. So it's a simple and a true statement of scripture that without Jesus, we are all functional atheists. And it doesn't matter how religious and moral you are. So let's get to the second section. Let's talk about the result of functional atheism, verse 4 through 6. This is the result of functional atheism. And I love this, and if you don't mind, I'm going to delve into this in a little bit of detail. The result of functional atheism is consumerism. It's consumerism. And I'm not talking about the kind of consumerism where you got a little extra money in your pocket and you're going to go to Walmart and buy yourself a, you know, a cool 42-inch Vizio smart TV, which is on my list. Okay? Um, I'm not talking about that. That can be harmful. That can be something that you maybe shouldn't do. I'm not talking about that kind of consumerism. The kind of consumerism that's mentioned here in Psalm 14 is this. It's more than just a consumption of things because that's a little hobby horse for people. Live simply so others can simply live. Have you heard that? Have you seen that uh, little, little uh, bumper sticker? We're not talking about that. We're talking about not the consumption of things. We're talking about the consumption of people. Functional atheists, those who are chasing idolatry, those who are chasing something other than God, to satisfy them, to give them a complete flourishing in their life, to give them the peace that passes all understanding, they will eventually, even if they speak the words, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, even if they speak those words, but they don't believe it, they don't truly have it deeply in their heart, they will begin to consume people. This is the story of the North American church. It's the story of Western civilization and the church in the West. We don't, we consume each other in the body of Christ because we believe that coming to Christ is all about what will I receive from that relationship. And we treat Jesus as the Santa Claus in the sky that if we come to him, he's so lucky to have me. He'll give me whatever I want. That is not what God had in mind in terms of the response of worship that we talked about in our first section there. When you become a follower of Christ, when you truly are a theist, a person not only who believes intellectually, but deeply in your heart, everything you do and everything you are is dedicated to the worship of the triune God, you become a servant. You become a servant, not a consumer. My mom um, said this proverb a lot when we were growing up. Many hands make light work. Maybe you've heard that. And that was always the, the, the thing she would say right before all of us had to clean the entire house. Um, we all had to band together. It was so interesting because invariably with five children in the family, one of us was going to be selfish. Usually a band of us would be selfish. Either the boy, three boys or the two girls, you know, we'd vote. Let's us be selfish this time and let the girls do all the work. And man, sometimes we, we would be so selfish and 
there would be that twinge of guilt, like, man, my sisters are really doing a lot of work. And, and I'm just consuming their time because if I were to join in, they would have more time to go do something that they would like to do rather than what they have to do. But many times I wasn't convicted at all. I said, hey, go for it. Many hands means you and, and Angela, my other sister. Okay, I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch. I'm going to sit back and I'm going to let you partake in the mission of cleaning the house while I just watch what happens. Folks, this is the reality. And this is something that has got, do you, let me, let me just go back to our uh, confession of sin and our assurance of pardon. Do you know why we do that every single week? Because we want to take you from the place of selfish consumerism, thinking that I'm not that bad. Um, Jesus died for most of my sins, but the other ones I'll take care of. Um, The crucified Savior on the cross, risen again in glory as King of kings and Lord of lords right now, is here so that his mission will move forward. And we confess our sins and have the assurance of pardon so that we understand there is a Lord of lords, there is a King of kings. He's not us, and he's called us into a mission. Not a a mission of consumption of people and things. Many hands make light work. A symptom of functional atheism is the never-ending need to serve yourself and get what you can while you can. It's a mindset, I would say even a heart set, of constantly seeking what is in it for me, and I have to look out for number one. Now, this is what's really interesting. The opposite of consumerism is not simplicity or thrift. That's what the Greek philosophers would have said. Consumerism, even the the Buddhist would say, consumerism can kill the soul, so simplify your life. Folks, the opposite of consumerism is not simplicity or thrift. The biblical Christian view of the opposite of consumerism is this. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Your consumerism stems from a a part of your heart that just doesn't truly believe that God has your best interest in heart in mind and he wants your heart to be changed and he wants you to flourish as he has created you to flourish. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The opposite of consumerism is not simplicity or thrift. It is trust in the Lord. Uh, He says in verse 4 through 6 that functional atheists do not call upon the Lord. The Lord says he will give us all we need. The Lord says he will give us the desires of our heart. Worship of God leads to a flourishing in life. Consumerism leads to destruction of ourselves and others. For a moment, your consumerism feels really good. The long-term consumeristic effect is death and destruction, not only of you, but of others around you. So this is, this is me stepping slightly askew from the pulpit and asking this question. Will you find a local body of believers if you're a follower of Christ and will you serve in the mission of that church? Will you serve in the mission of that church? The, the mission of our church is to go make uh, disciples for the glory of God, teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded That's what our church is about. That's why we gather on Sundays in our worship gathering. That's why we gather throughout the week in city groups. It's to go and make disciples who will obey everything that God has commanded us. 
we have areas of service that you will not get like a plaque that says volunteer of the year. Okay, you won't. We, we have areas of service that involve cleaning the bathroom, that involve brewing coffee, that involve prepping our, our uh, building for our Sunday worship gathering, that involve going with someone who has a neighbor who is in need and helping them serve that neighbor in need. There are programmed things that, that need help. There are unprogrammed things that just need followers of Christ to have open eyes through the power of the Holy Spirit to see the needs around them and to dive in and help serve the cause of Christ, the mission of Christ through the body of a local church. Will, will you do that? See, the, the Bible talks many times, especially in the New Testament, about one another. You know, it's not about you. You've heard that. It's about Jesus. It's about you serving other people. You've been gifted to serve other people. Little things, big things, in between things. We need our, our body. We need everyone who calls himself a follower of Christ to not be a functional atheist who is consuming but to be a theist, a person who truly believes in the Lord and goes out to serve on his mission. Those who trust in the Lord, um, according to the end of this section, in verse 4 through 6, they have, a very, uh, they have a couple very important things. Number one is they are called or they will be with the generation of the righteous. I'll talk more about that in a minute. And, and they also have the Lord as their refuge. The Lord is their refuge. Those who are completely abandoned to the following of Jesus, to the worship of God in all things, can call Jesus their refuge, their shelter, and their shield from evil. And sometimes that is now. But more importantly, it is for eternity. You will spend eternity with Jesus as a person who is a worshiper of Christ. The only solution, and this is our last point in the psalm, the only solution for functional atheism is found in verse 7. I would start by saying this. We all need a solution for our functional atheism. David calls the solution salvation. Salvation. Salvation is exactly what you think, and it's more than what you think. It's exactly what you think in that it's deliverance from a heart of sin, deserving of eternal death and separation from God. And through Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again, you can have a relationship with the Father, and you are given His righteousness. You can be called the generation of the righteous because your righteousness is Jesus' righteousness given to you. When God looks at you, He doesn't see all of the the, the warts of your sin. He sees his son crucified, risen, coming again. The Jesus who was the perfect God-man who walked on the planet, told us his truth, and died on the cross for us. There is that salvation, that deliverance from the sin. But there is also the ongoing salvation, the ongoing sanctification, if you will, of your heart to be conformed to the image of Christ. When I was in college, there was a guy who stood up at a, at a college conference and, and he said um, this, this great message on Romans 12, 1 and 2. It was about basically offering your bodies up as a living sacrifice. And he said, 
in view of all of the philosophies that have ever been presented on the planet, in view of all of the consumeristic things that people think will make them happy, in view of all of the isms, asms, and spasms of life that you could follow, the only reasonable and logical thing to do is to not be a fool who says in his heart there is no God. It's to be a person who relents and surrenders and says Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. It's the only logical thing to do. And when that happens, and when you begin to grow and be sanctified or cleansed and set apart in your confirmation to the image of Jesus Christ, you are living a flourishing life. Paul talks about three different types of people in in one of his letters. The first is a person who does not know Jesus. He is the natural man who has no relationship. The second is the person who, who is a spiritual man. He's following Jesus. He understands that he is sinful, that God is perfect, that Jesus is perfect. He doesn't try to morally perfect himself. He believes in the perfection of Jesus given to him, and he loves and serves and worships God, and he confesses his sin, and he repents of what he needs to repent of and turns back to Jesus. And then there is the most miserable of all people, the carnal man. The person who is most likely saved, but they are, they're rebelling against the call of God on their life to submit to him in every area of life. It's illogical. It's unreasonable. It's functional atheism. And I just have to ask, because as I ask you, I ask myself, how is that working for you? How is it knowing the God of the universe who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sin, and not only that, but to give you a flourishing, sanctified, holy, separate life from what the world can offer. How is it to know that and to walk under the power of your own flesh? To do what you want to do. To make decisions that you want to make, regardless of what God convicts you of. David was looking forward to a salvation. And he says it comes out of Zion. It will restore the fortunes of his people and it will make the people of God rejoice and be glad. Do you know who he was looking forward to? He was looking forward to Jesus. A relationship with Jesus is the only answer to our functional atheism. He will change our heart from corruption and consumerism and will make us truly holy because Jesus is holy. He will make us truly be servants because he was the ultimate servant who served us by dying on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice. As we come to the communion table, if you're a follower of Jesus, repent of your functional atheism. Ask God to give you a holy and righteous trust in him as King of King, uh, kings and Lord of Lords. If you don't know Jesus, you can know him today. it's, It's not enough to give lip service. You have to have a personal relationship with the triune God of the universe, and it is only through Jesus Christ the Son. He says if you will receive that free gift of his salvation, he will call you his child. I have children. Like the... The amount of sacrifice and expense and love and dedication I have to them so that they will move forward as people who will be worshipers of Jesus. I love them. 
with the utmost love I can muster, how much more does your father love his children? You can become a child of his today. And if you do, if you receive his gift of salvation, you can come forward to the communion table and maybe for the first time take the bread representing the body which was broken for you. Dip it in the wine or the juice representing the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray. Father, early in this passage, some of us, including myself, may have been thinking that at least I'm not a complete atheist. Boy, those guys are in trouble. But I know in my heart, I'm a functional atheist at times. I give lip service to the God of gods, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords being the ultimate in the cosmos. But in my heart, I try to do things my own way. I try to create a moral pathway for me to feel better about myself. And it's clear from this passage and many others that there is no one apart from the transformation that only Jesus can give that seeks after God. We need that radical miracle of your interjection into our world to change our hearts, to transform our minds, to give us the belief that consumerism will will kill. The foolishness of saying there is no God will destroy but the worship of the triune God of the universe in all areas and in all ways will give us a life that will flourish. Pray that we'll receive that now and we'll remember that at the communion table. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.